podcast ain't played nobody. I, I bemoaned the, the passing of one Vern Lundquist yesterday on Twitter and was, <laughs> was reprimanded because he has not actually left. He's not left the earth and we're shed the mortal coil. He is simply leaving the SEC on CBS. The, the concept of, of tolerating a Danielson without Vern as the, as the mint wrapped around that is just going to be terrifying. Um, does this have the same... I, I, for you, I know it does just because you, you're so embedded in, in all of college football, but I wonder if this has the same effect when you leave the southeastern footprint. Like, like, do you think? Do you think when you go back to home to Oklahoma, people have this kind of reverence for for Vern Lundquist? Well, I mean, you can find during any game, you can find the the grumpy crowd on Twitter talking more about how he gets stuff wrong than you know. Oh, he's just so lovable. I, I think um, you 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 kind of fall for an announcer um, through repetition. And so yeah. if you're only watching like one or two games a year that includes him and he gets a couple things wrong, which he still doesn't get a ton wrong. Uh, I think last year was probably his worst year, which makes sense. But um, he still is not that, you know, he's still a pretty good announcer despite the, you know, outside of the personality and everything else. Um, but I do think if you only get him once or twice a year instead of like every single week, then you're more likely to notice um, – well, he got that player's name wrong instead of over, and how are you going to call this one? Because, um, I mean, that's, you know, just over time, if you're an SEC fan, uh, not necessarily a Missouri fan because they haven't had many opportunities, but, uh, you know, if you're if you're an Auburn fan, your memory of 2013 is completely glued to how Vern called the Georgia play and the Alabama play. Um, and I, I know there were, like, the local announcers. You can find that on YouTube, too. Um, and the kick six especially was uh, was absolutely nuts for, on the radio side. But, um, you know, just when you picture those plays, and when I picture 97 Missouri-Nebraska, I hear Brent Musburger. Um, like, I was at the game. I didn't even watch the game until the next day when we replayed it. But every single time I've, I've seen a clip of it, it's involved Brent uh, Musburger. Uh, and I think it's kind of the same deal with anybody who's from a longtime SEC school. They, they just, a lot of their best memories, there's Vern Lundquist in their head on the call. Yeah, no, it's the, it's the exact same thing for me. We've um, we've been soliciting our listeners. By the way, insane turnout. We have to keep going because we need more numbers. So keep going. If you've already sent one, please don't send another one. Uh, but we just want to, if you haven't sent in a score, um, please do. All you have to do is email us and tell us about the one college football game that changed your life and the score. That's it. My we'll goodness, the, 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 the emails we've gotten, by the way, we haven't just been getting scores. We've been getting personal stories, and yeah. they're awesome. I've been trying to figure out already how to, like, compile those because it's what, really cool. What I'm thinking is there will be a momentary lull probably close to August where we'll, we'll have previewed ourselves into a circle or into a corner and – and we won't have any real football to talk about yet. So I think we may do a standalone episode where we just talk about these stories because they're pretty awesome. They're uh, really blown away by by the initiative you guys took and telling us. And some of it's really personal and some of it's very funny and some of it's very sad. Um, and I think one of the big things, too, is right about now um, is is maybe the least fun part of the co- the college football calendar where anything we're talking about is either things we've argued about 20 times before or somebody got fired, or somebody got arrested, or whatever. It's not a lot of fun uh, talking no. about this sometimes, and and this and is. It's, a, been, it, it's been a nice reinforcement for me. Um, somebody actually picked the game that that's mine, and and um, I, we don't have to save these for the for the show. But mine is, uh, and I've talked about it on the show before. Was I covered the two thousand and three LSU and Ole Miss game as a, as a 
college newspaper beat writer and, and really kind of figured out the depth and the the passion and all that stuff that we talked about. But uh, for the topic at hand, the one memory, well, not the one memory, but a distinct memory I have is the exact same situation. I was at the game covering the game, and then in retrospect, I hear Vern Lundquist say, it's goosebump time in Oxford, Mississippi, which was the first words he said when he came on the call. Um, so... It's going to be weird. I'm, I'm sad. It's a genuine thing. And, and, and when people say that, you know, Vern screwed, I, I can't ever remember Vern screwing something up, but I know he has before. It's just the, he has a certain patois and a certain uh, presence and uh, has, I always thought, straddled the line between the deliverer of news and, and a voice that had gravity, but also that colloquial uncle. And, and yeah. it's just, it's going to suck so hard. And, and there's not, nothing against Brad Nessler. It's just a more matter of him. Brad Nessler is not Vern Lundquist, and that's not a fair comparison to make for anybody out there. Yeah, I, I really just want my announcer to be enjoying talking about the game. Like, that's, like, the number one qualification for me. Even the, you know, Keith Jackson's last game, the Texas-USC game in 05, um... Like, it became a story how off he was in that game. Watching it live, I didn't care because anything he got wrong, you know, it's, you know, it's like a family member. At that point, you're like, oh, well, I know he meant that. It's all good. And then he goes on being Keith Jackson, and it's great. I didn't care that he was inaccurate. I didn't need, I don't need somebody to tell me what's going on. I can tell what's going on. Jackson, Uh, Jackson felt a little, I'm not disagreeing with you, but Jackson felt a little uncomfortable for me because he was a little slower. Yeah, and that that kind of made me sad. And the the one that sticks out to me is Pat Summerall, which yeah. I grew up listening to Pat Summerall call those games with Madden, the NFL games. Yeah, and so he was the first voice I remember associated with any kind of football. But then he had a, I think he had a, a, it was a deal through Fox to do the Cotton Bowls. Yeah, I don't know five, four or five Cotton Bowls. This was before the playoff, obviously, and and I remember there's a year Arkansas was in there, and he's in a. It was Arkansas, Missouri, yeah, and. Uh, it was, a, that was, it was a, Arkansas, Oklahoma State, Ole Miss, all those Cotton Bowls in the mid aughts or late aughts, I should say, and they were just. He, it was. It made me sad. It did yeah. because you could tell a man's age, and there is a certain. There's a certain reflex and a certain agility that you have to have mentally, I think, to to to, to really paint a good picture. So. Yeah, uh, I, Vern hasn't lost that at all. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's part of the game. You will one day. But, and maybe it's it's a, a better idea to get out before you've really gone down that road. But you're right. Summerall was tough uh, to listen to. I know he did that that 08 Missouri Arkansas Cotton Bowl because, um, like, well, I mean, I just it was uncomfortable. I, I read about it being uncomfortable before I actually watched the telecast because I was at the game and and it was really damn uncomfortable. Uh, favorite Vern Lundquist calls. We are we're gonna open it up to you guys and then probably make a post out of this. So if you could actually, again, this podcast is slowly achieving my dream, which is crowdsourcing all of my work <laughs> duties. Um, I talked about the 2003 one. Um, one that sticks out to me is when he kind of loses it on Les Miles during the, the spike game against Ole Miss in 2009. Um, and then we just, actually before we went on the air, Bill and I just watched the blocked field goal from the 2006 South Carolina-Florida game. There's obviously the kick six. Um, Jason Kirk, our college football editor, uh, his submission, and we just did this casually yesterday, was one of the Cam Newton runs in 2010. I want to say it was against LSU. Bill, are, are we, I know there's a ton. 
There's an absolute ton, but those are the first few that jumped to mind to me. Um, yeah, I think the one that, that really, um, yeah, it was LSU, 49-yard touchdown run against yeah, LSU. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Um, that's the day I, I got the, married. The, the one that kind of just sucked up all the oxygen for me, the, the, the pinnacle is always going to be 2013 Auburn, Georgia. Because um, anything that, anytime Vern just starts going, oh, gosh, oh, no, like, where, like that, that he reaches that level um, where, oh, no, is kind of his version of loud noises. Um, that that was the the perfect call. Obviously, the next week was great too, or two weeks later, or whatever that was against Alabama was great too. Um, but yeah, that was the one. Just that moment, uh, <laughs> he 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 was exactly as surprised as he should have been at, at the way that play unfolded. Um, I think we'll leave it up to you guys to submit the rest. There's there are a ton. Um, but Elliot over on our recruiting side said that his favorite was him reading a promo for a CBS television <laughs> movie called Locust during the NCAA tournament. Um, I do remember him always being pretty funny about the mandatory ad reads. So enjoy it. We'll get one more good year out of it. Oh, and uh, speaking of actual kind of newsy news that was just dropped on us as we recorded this early CBS schedule. This was the question I was going to ask you to lead off the show. Um, as a Missouri fan, take away the two title game appearances. Is there a... Do, is there a fond memory, any memory of, of like, or, or that feeling of certification in getting the, it's actually 3.30 Eastern, I know this, but we always call it the 2.30 here in God's country. Uh, is there like the same sort of bona fides of getting the CBS 2.30 at Missouri? Is it just, it hasn't been that long a trip? Oh yeah, I mean, I think that was um, a really big deal, like when, it, it was like a, a, a hurdle to clear. Like, so that first year, okay, the first home game is against Georgia, uh, when's when's Vern coming for the first time? Yeah, and I, I believe that was the Alabama game that was. Um, first of all, it was postponed for an hour. Like um, it was Eddie Lacy breaks off like an eighty yard run on like the first play of the game, and then it gets postponed for an hour, and then the last three quarters are played in front of like eighteen people. Um, heavy rain or thunder was that it? Yeah, yeah, ma- heavy, heavy, heavy rain, and then the thunder. We were just praying for a bolt of lightning so that we would have an excuse to not be standing there. Right. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of, it ended up being a terrible game and a terrible everything, but it was still like, once we heard that, that Vern was coming, that was, that was another, you know, box to check on the list. We're officially SEC. Um, and then, then, uh, for our Missouri fans got to grumble for a long time. Cause I don't think they did another Missouri game until the end of, until the SEC title game in 2013, like a year and a half later. Well, uh, if you're grumbling, if you're grumbling about that, you, you, you is SEC as hell, because that is a, <laughs> that is a gripe among fans, both deserving and non-deserving. Yeah. And, and yeah, we have to, yeah, we have to see the conspiracies wherever they are. And that's, that's part of, of course, being a fan in general. Of course. Absolutely. Um, so the, uh, the, the, yeah, what about half the season ish? Slate for CBS was announced. Um, it'll kick off on Labor Day weekend, the UCLA-Texas A&M game. Um, and then the first – normally the CBS coverage starts on the SEC. Sorry for being so provincial this week, as we always are. It, it, the tradition, tradition air quotes, was always the Tennessee-Florida game in week three. Um, CBS has expanded their coverage since then, and they're going to actually start in earnest in terms of conference play in week two. Eh, Kentucky at Florida. Yeah. Yeah. They did not have the rights to the battle at Bristol, which would probably been the mar- well, probably will be the marquee game, um, and then the other one that they they really kind of start in earnest again in that third week. Alabama at Ole Miss. Then they have, uh, of course, the cocktail party in late October. 
They are going to do a triple header this year on November 5th, which will undoubtedly involve LSU Alabama in some way. Um, they're going to do a 3.30 and then a primetime kick, but they're also going to start with Notre Dame-Navy, which could actually be a good game. Uh, they'll do another doubleheader the following week, so they're declaring their doubleheaders early this year. And then um, we talked a little bit before we went on the air, Bill. Are we? You're, you're, you're not okay with the Friday kick? No, you're okay with the Friday kick for Arkansas-Missouri. You're just a little, what, miffed at the branding? Yeah, yeah, no, I have no problem. Uh, it's especially a good time if I have to, you know, because there are inevitably going to be a lot of important games on that weekend, and now it's not going to interfere, um, like, Saturday evening. Like, that was, I was, uh, you know, I was tailgating in a parking lot when the kick six happened because uh, Missouri-Texas A&M was going on right afterwards. Um, so, no, pr- that's kind of, a, as far as a viewing experience, Friday afternoon's perfectly fine. Uh, no, I, I, the, my problem with Missouri-Arkansas is that, uh, you know, Mizzou football put out the official release saying news battle line rivalry set for Friday, November 25th. And I actually had to pause and think, wait, is that Missouri, Arkansas? I think that's Missouri, Arkansas. Uh, if you have so you want to rename the, the rivalry. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, that it doesn't involve something with the word Ozark. I mean, I, I don't claim the Ozarks. I've lived here for 20 years and I don't really claim anything with the word Ozark in it. But if you're doing so, any competition of any kind between the state of Missouri and the state of Arkansas, um, it seems really silly to use, uh, and I've just, I just blanked on it entirely, battle, battle line, line rivalry. <laughs> it, it seems really silly to go that route instead of using something pretty obvious. So, and, and, you know, if you've, if you've labeled a rivalry, people? sorry, if you've labeled a, labeled a rivalry before you've actually had any, like, more than one good game, yeah, you might be jumping the gun a little bit. I think, I mean, Missouri and Arkansas fans have annoyed each other forever. Like it's a, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's going to continue developing. Uh, when back a couple of years ago, when Missouri actually had a basketball team, that was a really intense environment in both uh, Columbia and Fayetteville. Like it's, it's there and it's going to happen. That's great. Uh, maybe you wait to to label it until it actually does kind of happen. If you label, if, if you use the word Ozarks, which I'm totally in favor of, I think that from what I know about the state of Arkansas. That will piss off everyone in Little Rock and, and also piss off everyone in, in the south southeast corner of the state because there's this big cultural divide with, like, the state of Arkansas and then the northwest corner. Well, and, and Missouri and or Kansas City and St. Louis aren't exactly tied to that label either. But yeah. you just you, you use battle line uh, that doesn't do anything. I, I would have called it the Cape Girardeau Cup, but but nobody asked me. So well, well I mean, we tried Sy- to get Sykeston Classic. Well, I mean, what we tried to go with a few, uh, a couple of years ago was loser claims Branson. That, that seems to work <laughs> for me too. How about the Branson Bowl? Maybe they could just move it there. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's uh, that's your CBS coverage. Nothing, uh, nothing world beating there, other than the fact that poor old Vern is going to have to call a Kentucky Florida game. Um, <laughs> He's going to have to work an extra week, and that's the extra week. Uh, also, one of my colleague, one of our colleagues, I think it was David Oven, said, w- worried on Twitter when the announcement of his retirement was made. Would, did did that mean that Vern's last game would be the Sun Bowl? And it looks like it will be, which is yeah. a really kind of sad thing. I think I thought out. I saw something yesterday about him, his last game being the SEC title game. So maybe they have Carly really? Blackburn. I would think though that people forget that. Oh, Army Navy. Yeah, Army Navy. I feel like yeah. would probably be a fitting send off. Yeah, for he him. loves Army Navy. Who doesn't? Um, all right, we stalled. We we we've really stalled. Um, yeah, it's all bad news the, uh, from here. Well, no, let's do the other reader questions first. Oh, that's right, that's right. Bill and I actually built in a buffer for the obvious uh, talking points of the of the show. We were going to do our reader questions first. 
That way, if you're here for the meat of it, we're going to lull you in or just make you listen to stuff you don't listen to. Um, so we pulled for questions. Uh, the first one we've actually already done, which is Michael at Mick, uh, NCA Nerdy asks, what is your favorite Uncle Vern memory call? We're going to throw that out to you guys and then put the best ones up. Um, the second question, this is definitely a Bill question. Um, well, it's a, I don't know if it is a Bill question. There's a lot of numbers involved, so I immediately kind of flee in fear. But I think this may be a behind-the-scenes question. Um, Sam Donnelly, uh, at Sam Donnelly, asks, what's the most likely scenario for Clay Helton winning eight games and getting fired? Now, I assume he means winning eight games and getting fired in this, this, in this upcoming season. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question. It's sort of a riddle. Um, my first blush is, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump off from here, is that it's not possible. No. Um, in his first year, because of the situation that's involved in terms of stability and the lack thereof and the fact that they're bringing in a new AD. I think that if Helton lives at the eight win mark, he's out of there, no doubt. But as far as a year one, I, yeah. I don't see how that's possible. Es- now, especially it, with a, an athletic director who's been an athletic director for like a month. I don't want to make being an AD sound like being like a, a physicist or something. But, I mean, I don't see Lynn Swan being in any position to fire a first-year coach over anything uh, three months on the job. Um, now, there is – I mean, if we're going to assume that a scenario exists for losing uh, – for winning eight and, and getting fired, they do start the year with Alabama uh, and then after Utah State to get at Stanford at Utah. Technically, one and three is on the table. Uh, and if you start with one and three and you get crushed by Alabama and, and maybe crushed by either Stanford or Utah too, and then you get that, that level of, uh, you know, fan animosity up. Cause I mean, I, I know a, a certain portion of the fan base really had no, <laughs> that was the most interesting thing going to uh, LA and tailgating with USC fans and everything last fall. Like they, so much of the fan base doesn't buy this whole, we've got to hire a USC guy thing. Yeah. Uh, and and they're tired of it. They just want, you know, they would rather go after Tom Herman than find somebody who knows how to coach USC um, when so many of those guys haven't actually known at all. So, so two, two scenarios here. You tell me yeah. if either one of these okay. feels okay to you. Uh, and I'm trying to answer the question. I'm trying to create a scenario. I, I think our answer is no, it's not going to happen. That's a logical answer. The, the best scenario I can come up with is the following. USC, always volatile, has a history of firing coaches in season. What if they start 0-4? Yeah. So they get blown out by the Tide. They, they lose in a I – don't, I don't know. There is no loss to Utah State at home. It's going to seem respectable, even though that's, that's a, very, a very good ball club. Uh, then they get blown out by Stanford, and then they lose substantially, let's say by 14 points or more on the road at Utah. Yeah. They fire him, and then they win the next eight. I think yeah. that's with another interim, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Basically, when I was trying to craft a scenario there, like you start zero and three or one and four. I mean, one and three and or zero and four. It's really kind of hard to end up with eight wins. Um, but yeah, because yeah, that, I mean, that means someone on the staff becomes what just a you know a miracle man, a you know faith healer, and they suddenly rip off wins against Oregon at Washington at UCLA, Arizona State. I, I don't. And then oh, and they close the year with Notre Dame, presumptive national title favorite. I don't I don't know. I, I don't see that. The other one is this. Um, Josh Whitman, Illinois athletic director. No one knew that he was gonna pull the trigger on on Cubit the way he did. Right. I don't think 
that this is going to happen. We don't think any of this is going to happen, but I'm trying to answer the question. Do you think that USC, maybe that some of the new leadership that's coming to USC feels like he's not, uh, Helton's not sexy enough? I think there's, there seemed to be this perception too that the team got better with him. They didn't. But it seemed to be, I, I think people were at least a little bit appeased with the way he finished up last year. And I think that's a, a massively incorrect. But um, that's where I think it was. I think since they went ahead and won the, the Pac-12 South, uh, you know, I, I think that probably appeased people to where him getting fired in one year for, for, with eight wins. Uh, I think that's impossible. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he goes four and eight or something, then it's absolutely possible. But, yeah, I don't see a scenario. I, I, the only scenario I see is that he starts his second year on the hot seat because of a disappointing 20, uh, 2015. 16. It's 2016 now. I, I don't see Lynn Swan doing that. I, I don't no. think there's any uh, – the move to hire Helton as the permanent coach was one of consistency and stability, and I don't think anyone would throw a wrench in that. So, now, you talk about next year – if 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 it's an eight win if it's an eight win year this year and an eight win year next year so sixteen wins in two years he's on the hot seat that's USC yeah yeah so uh, I don't know ask us again in a year by the way they have Texas and on their uh, twenty seventeen schedule they have Texas and Notre Dame and Western Michigan those are nice. their non conference games so they are courting trouble already for a coach I don't think I still don't think they're fully recovered um, last question. Uh, from Trayton Miller, and I'm going to feel this one, although Bill can definitely jump in numerically, um, because I, I do have a question for you, Bill, on on what we're about to, to talk about. We hear a lot about Idaho since they're dropping, but what's the future holding for New Mexico State? Can they be independent? Can I just ask you real, off the top of your head, this is the stuff we don't discuss before the show, and I apologize to you, but is there a numerical comparison to be made or that New Mexico State is either worse or, or definitively worse or definitively better than Idaho? No, I mean, they've both been really bad. <clears throat> New Mexico State the, has been a little bit worse, I think, the last couple of years, in part because Doug Martin has tried to has been building around five-year players. Yeah. Uh, Petrino got in there and after like one year went, oh, God, I, this is terrible, and, st- and signed like 28 JUCOs. Um, and, it, and it made them in the short term slightly better. But I, I felt bad because, uh, you know, I, I wrote this in the New Mexico State preview this year. They basically, Doug Martin's in, I think, like year four of what it really kind of seemed to be sketched out as a five-year building process where he builds depth. He, he's retaining his guys. He's not having to start over every year. Um, obviously, there's not a lot of, a ton of talent there. But, you know, each year the guys are in the program. They put on 10 pounds. They start to look more like a legitimate football team. They had moments last year where they looked like a legitimate football team. But then after, like, three years of a five-year plan, they get booted from the Sun Belt. Um, uh, so I would assume, I would, I would yeah. assume, and I'll finish and then throw it. Uh, I, I would assume the, the hope here is that if you just keep building, it's not like losing Sun Belt status is going to hurt your recruiting. You're not – you're not you're, – you're blowing any doors down recruiting anyway. Uh, you're just trying to find guys who could be pretty decent in four years. I, I would assume the idea here is that if they just stick around and independent long enough to where they can win some games, maybe they start to become attractive to the Mountain West. Um, I can't answer that. It, that seems like the only logical choice for them. They're going to go independent after this, this coming season. So they have one season left in the Sun Belt. Uh, I contacted multiple people for this and got multiple answers. Um, the first one was from uh, a couple, uh, a person inside the Sun Belt on the administrative side said, 
basically we didn't want them, we don't think that they have lasting power, and that's apropos of the whole geography problem. So they were never really wanted in the Sun Belt. That was no secret. It didn't make sense for the Sun Belt schools. It's nothing personal. It's just that schools with limited budgets relative to your to your Power 5 schools having to go to Idaho and New Mexico when normally they're, they're taking a bus, right. you know, or the, the, whatever the distance between you know, App State and Georgia Southern is, would be, you know, that's a normal trip size for the Sun Belt. So um, uh, then I asked a coach and I asked um, another person, and basically the the answer, I'm trying not to give anybody up here, is that this almost did happen. Um, when the rumor started with Idaho and when the two schools were orphaned, um, the, apparently the president and New Mexico State um, had recommended it for a number of reasons, financial and also you know, maybe to become a dominant FCS power, which yeah. is what Idaho thinks that they're going to become. Um, the university, in terms of, I don't know the exact structure of New Mexico State in terms of the academic side, but they have a board. The board didn't want it. The city didn't want it. The boosters didn't want it. Um, they feel like there's a bigger advantage in just being a member of the F- FBS and the exposure and potential money that comes from that. Um, so they're going to go independent and basically they're going to float for a while. And they think that they can wait out realignment and get a bid either in the Mountain West or the CUSA. So there's, there's another school that's living and dying and waiting and waiting and waiting on realignment. We talk about Cincinnati and BYU all the time with the Big 12, but this, when, when the Big 12 meets this week in Dallas, it has just as much to do with New Mexico State in the long run as it does with Cincinnati and BYU and Houston and those schools that are rumored to expand. So it's, the ripple effect, people forget the, the ripple effect goes all the way down, all the way down, because then the Sun Belt's probably pretty happy that these two schools are going, but if you feed schools up the chain, that means more FCS programs are going to look at making that jump. So what I'm talking about here is 10 years from now, North Dakota State winning the national title, Bill. Cool. I'm in. Are we good? Um, so I, I, I counted real fast. I might have missed some. So basically... Last year in FCS, using the Sagarin rankings, Idaho would have been uh, just inside the top 40, I believe. New Mexico State would have just been inside the top 50 um, in, in, in FCS. Wow. So, I mean, you're basically talking about them being like a Pitt or NC State in the, uh, of FCS. And that's, yeah. that's not a bad life. I mean, Idaho was making the playoffs when they were in 1AA. And, and so you have to believe that it's a money thing, like that you can make more and feed the rest of your athletic department by, by staying because you clearly don't have a, a defined future. It's going to be hard as hell to schedule. Um, like you don't even – like UMass is actually scheduling better than I anticipated in part because they have, you know, like Foxborough uh, to use. Uh, they, uh, there's no Foxborough in, in Las Cruces. Um, or I, there's no Gillette Stadium in Las Cruces, that is. And so um, it is going to be tough for them. But, I mean, it, I think it just all comes down to being able to look like a competitive team, and, and we'll see. We'll know real fast if, if Doug Martin's got it. I, I really do appreciate the long-term looks. I, I don't think enough coaches build in towards the long term, but the fact that he walked in the door, I think he signed like maybe two or three JUCOs a year. He really has been trying to build a sustainable thing. Um, and I, I mean, I'd love for it to work out. I'd love for them to start going seven and five a couple times and, and then start to maybe look attractive with a decent basketball program and everything else. I like it when those stories work out, but yeah. it's going to be tough for this to work out. 
I, I think the Cuse is an interesting point that the one coach told me about. We, we tend to think Mountain West because of the geography there. Right. But again, they're, they're closer. They're not far from El Paso. Yeah. And they're not. North they're Texas. Not, yeah. Right. UTSA kind of makes some sense. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Um, as much as I'd love to fill a podcast with Sunbelt also brands and potential CUSA expansion. And, and fun topics. Uh, let's do Baylor first. Okay. Yeah. Um, so by the time this podcast is live, I'm pretty sure I'll have a Baylor preview up for everybody to read. Um, it, it was one of the more awkward. It's, it is a preview of Baylor's 2016 football season because I am in the big 12 portion of the preview season and therefore Baylor's in the big 12. So it was time to talk about Baylor football and that was, amazingly awkward and and so I just tried to make a couple of points in the intro I know it's still getting edited so we'll see what happens um when it goes live but this is uh awkward I I I know everybody was kind of raging at the fact that like not all the assistants were fired I think what we saw yesterday uh in what was it his director of football operations Browse's football uh, director of football ops guy uh, and somebody else, uh, basically his like two right-hand men were fired with him. Uh, I guess maybe that means they were, it, when, when we saw the plural coaches or whatever it was in the report, when it was talking about meeting with victims and their families, maybe that means they were the two that were with Bryles and maybe the other uh, assistants weren't really that involved. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I have to say that's not in the preview, but uh, it's going to be interesting. It it was very interesting previewing a team that on paper has talent everywhere, uh, less so on the lines than last year, and that's probably going to trip them up in the Big 12 race or would have in a different world. Uh, And then the the just this enormous issue of intangibles that could result in them being 12 and 0 or, or like 6 and 6. They're, they're not this isn't uh, John L Smith in Arkansas kind of situation. There's more talent on this team. Um and they're going to have a good offense no matter like if they let you and me call the plays they were going to have a good offense this year. But um I'll do that. Okay, yeah. Let, we'll make some calls. Um but no, it, it is it was really interesting writing a preview where like, yep, yep, good quarterback, good skill position guys. They got pretty decent reinforcements on the line, pretty active secondary, da 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 da. I'm not making a prediction here and you can't make me. <laughs> that was basically the preview. So, uh yeah, I've got a, I also have something going up, uh, hopefully by the time you guys hear this, although I think it'll be Thursday, midday at the earliest. So if you're a, if you're an early riser on PAPN episodes, it won't be up yet, but I talked to a lot of head coaches, uh, the last two days and I talked to a lot, well, I talked to a lot of assistant coaches. I talked to a handful of head coaches that, um, were either in the area or kind of had experiences similar to it or just had some insight and, the probably the the unifying sentiment that was like unsolicited, you know, the coaches bringing this up to me, I didn't ask them uniform questions. Was that of all the details that have emerged so far? Well, let me back up and say this: I talk to some of my regular sources in coaching anytime a big thing happens, um, just to sort of see what's going on in the coaching world, like what the what what's the idle gossip, what's the what's the generally held belief for subject X amongst. Division one head coaches and assistants, mean assistants, because they gossip. <laughs> and I think there was like a 45-minute gap of the news breaking that Bryles was fired and the details emerging. Yeah. 
Maybe even longer, but yeah, not long. Yeah, maybe an hour, I don't know, maybe 45, 90 minutes, something like that. And, and that's really crucial because it's a long time to speculate. So as soon as I see it come across, and I don't know who broke it, whatever, I start texting. And the, the sentiment in that window was, man, they're going to hang him out to dry for this because they feel like they can go get a, a quality head coach. And like he built it, and now they're okay dumping, dumping the architect. So it was very pro-Briles. Yeah. And it was very because coaches tend to if there's an if they're looking objectively at a situation in which there's a problem between a coach and administration, of course they're going to side with the coach because they're coaches, even if they don't know the coach, even if they don't like the coach. Um, But then the news breaks, and then the news kind of breaks breaks, and we start getting all the the details, or at least the details that we have so far, and the sentiment changes pretty dramatically, which was holy f. How in the world? Why, why in the world? And and the reaction just went 180. Not that Bryles is some sort of demon, but that they just couldn't believe how it was handled internally. Most of the coaches I talked to flat out said, "I don't know how this happened because I've never I've never worked at a place or this place that I work at right now that that couldn't possibly happen." Yeah. And what what they're talking about this is specifically Bryles meeting with the victims. We believe Bryles or Bryles' coaches or, or DFO or ops or whatever meeting with alleged victims and their families. And so the coaches kind of worked from that. That was the big shock point for them and then worked backwards. And, we, you know, it was kind of funny. One coach last night asked me a bunch of questions like, how did this not get leaked from the cops? <laughs> how did how did they get a minute out of the like how did they get a minute out of the building multiple times and this not come up? How did an administrator not leak this? And it's kind of funny because some of the coaches I talked to are at big power five programs where there's a massive, you know, uh, I guess you call a message board culture or rumor culture or something. Yeah. So they were shocked more that like they, they kept looking at the situation thinking, well, how did this not get out? Or, you know, what, some GA let some, you know, two, four, seven site guy know or whatever. Um, and because of that, they, they, the, the overwhelming sentiment, and I'm going to touch delicately. I haven't finished the column yet, but I want to touch delicately on this. The the armchair quarterbacking that came from other people in Art Bryles' profession is that there was a the culture was systemic, and that there was a coordinated cover up that goes outside of football, um, which is pretty damning. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, it could have been a coordinated cover up. It could have just also been the people who needed to be watching were watching. Um, or you know a combination of the two. There had to be there were there were some things were covered for sure. I just don't know how far it went beyond you know Bryles and and whoever else. I think that's going to be interesting to watch. But it did kind of seem like you know the the people the, the, there just wasn't kind of the same watchful culture when it comes to like I can't imagine that happening at you know Missouri for instance. Um, now granted. Uh, media at Missouri, like uh, many many other schools, are like completely locked out now, and so, or, or not completely, but um, access has been limited significantly. So maybe with th- that opens the door for something. But yeah, it, it was. It took a lot of things for this specific thing to happen, and I think you you talked about coaches their 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 opinions kind of evolving over the period of a few hours. I think some of the columns that came out early on after he was fired, it was kind of the same deal. Like we, we, we did see a lot of sentiment regarding 
uh, this changes everything. This is a watershed moment kind of, you know, that somebody was fired for this. But then when it came out, when the report said that he met with a victim and her family, it, it, it was over. I mean, that you that's that would get you fired anywhere in the country at any time, like once it's public anyway. And and so I don't think this changes anything, really. It was just that 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 specific thing happened and you can't that cannot happen ever. And it happened, therefore he got fired. And I don't think there's any I, I sort mean, of... I, there's no cultural change here. There's no moral change in college football. This thing got too expensive. Legal liability in this got too expensive. And I think that's it. There is no call to arms to change what's... You know, where are our priorities? None of that. Sorry. It's just not the case. Um, which is as decent enough a segue as I could create between two completely different scandals or completely different issues um uh we did not discuss what we were going to say about Ole Miss before we put on the air um I would only say that um I guess we I started out on Friday laughing at people who tried to draw a connection between these two things and that's then I ended the day trying to explain why no Ole Miss did not try and dump their news yeah behind the shadow of a sex scandal at Baylor because they wouldn't want what happened to happen, which is the people trying to tie those two things together. So, um, I've done a lot of radio in Mississippi since Friday. It's the the new I'll get the news portion out of this uh, of this first. This isn't over. This is not even the, the first wave of this stuff has not even been decided yet. There was a delay for the committee of infractions based off of what happened on draft night with Laramie Tunsil. The proposals are simply just that. They're proposals. They haven't been approved. Now, I've had multiple people tell me, well, hey, they didn't, that, you know, Ole Miss didn't just come up with those self-sanctioning numbers out of thin air, you know, hint, hint, wink, wink. But um, I I, I believe that, but I also believe that this, if there was an agreement brokered for a certain level of punishment, that was brokered before draft night. Um, The NCAA can and almost certainly will reopen another case based on what happened with Tunsil on draft night. Um, so the short version of this, and what I've tried to do in these those quick little radio hits, is just say, hey, this doesn't really change anything. We don't have any conclusive evidence on the first thing, and this thing's far from over. So take of that what you will. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if I have to reiterate for the four thousandth time my stance on this kind of on these kind of controversies and how they relate to more pressing issues, but. Um, it's going to keep happening. The real war that Ole Miss is going to fight now is not, you know, the, the, the penalty and the decision-making there is going to be out of their hands ultimately. They're going to fight. They're going to go ticky-tack on some of those some of those level one allegations. But the real fight now is going to be the perception against them in recruiting because it, they don't have the they don't have the ability to to survive th- two or three subpar recruiting classes. That's how they. That's how the Houston Nut era went. <laughs> Ole Miss is not insulated for that kind of problem, so they could survive one and a half, maybe. Um, they have a quarterback in place that they feel like is going to be a, you know, a four-year all-conference starter. They're going to try and build around that uh, that kid, Shea Patterson. And but if they lose depth and they get hurt on the lines, it's going to show up. You know, the kid you could have a bunch of eight and four seasons instead of nine and three, ten and two. So. Or, well, I mean, you can, you can slide a lot further than eight and four. If, uh... Uh, at Ole Miss, you could. I mean, you could easily have a, 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 a. I think at Ole Miss, you could have. Let's say the kid ends up being the best quarterback in the conference, but if they lose, the, if they lose depth on defense, which 
in certain projections, you would assume that would happen. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna be fighting for five hundred. Yeah, I mean that's when when you're in that tough a division, you can be pretty good, but end up six and six. Arkansas, Arkansas is living proof of that. Um, but they still, kind of, I mean, whether whether they're kind of it's it's a forgivable six and six. It's still six and six, and that doesn't tend to fly in the SEC West. So, um, yeah, it'll be. I mean, they can you know, especially if you have a good quarterback, you don't need like you can get away with. If you have a good quarterback and decent injuries luck, you can kind of skate by. But, yeah, not for four years because, I mean, if nothing else, Patterson's a true freshman this year, but he's going to be behind what might be the best uh, quarterback in the conference. And so you might only get two years of starting out of him. And you know, and at that point, your your program is kind of exposed one way or the other. We'll we'll find out pretty soon if he can if it can stand on its own still. Um, do I have anything else to add to Ole Miss? No, not at the moment. Um, comparing the two situations is insane. People will. That's fine. Um, do I think they should be punished? Uh, people have asked me that, even with my stance on on you know compensation for players, and that I think I re- I retweeted one of the members of the Oxford media said that it was what one point five million for something like twenty thousand dollars in infractions. So, oh right, one point five million. Yeah, yeah. Mi- yeah, spent by by the university. Um, do I think they should be pointed? I think they got sloppy. Is Ole Miss cheating? Of course. Guess what? So is Alabama. <laughs> so is Mississippi State. So is LSU. So is Georgia. So is Texas. So is Michigan. They're all cheating. Um, and they should. And I have no problem with that. Uh, whether you do or not is up to you. Uh, I, I, maybe You know what? Maybe there is a world in which you should be punished for being sloppy. Maybe it, maybe going forward we, we all just silently consent to a more permissive culture of, of benefits for players, but you know, you have to be really good at it. Like, you know, s- s- stealth endorsement and, s- and stealth uh, stealth rewarding. Or the something. Al Capone rule, basically. I guess. I don't care. <laughs> you know, whatever. People listen to this are going to say, oh, it's your own what But I, I really don't care. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the, the fact is, if you do it, you're, you're doing it knowing what the rules are. You risk getting caught. You risk getting punished and probably eventually losing your job. job. Um that's just, that's, you know, and whether those rules are, you know, we can disagree with the rules, but they're rules and they're known. It's like, you know, a, a wide receiver getting caught, you know, testing positive for pot or whatever. He knew there was a chance he would get caught if he did it. And, he you know, all, all of that. Um, I mean, I expect them to get punished. Yeah, of course they're going to get punished. I'm not, I'm not like out there saying, you know. Yeah, death penalty, yeah. I think what what's the, I mean what, quickly I think Bill and I are in the exact same thinking as most of the people are at our fine establishment. But uh, if you fail for marijuana, do I think a kid should be punished? No. Do if the kid fails for a PED, do I think he should be kept out? Yes. Um, do I think that it that someone should be punished for the show co- or not potential show cause against Saunders and Chris Vaughn, the coach who's now formerly of Texas, for fixing ACT scores? Yes. Um, do I think that uh, kids should be ineligible because they took money? No. Um, do I think that – do I get outraged or, or do I think something should be done about uh, kids – or uh, players, I should stop saying kids. It's very condescending. Uh, players who assault women, absolutely. Do I think something should be done for gun violence? Absolutely. Um, but to me, there's a world of difference between toting a pistol around and beating a woman than, than taking $800 handshakes. To me, that's not even – that's not even a comparison to be made. 
I find myself, I, I kind of view the whole pain. I mean, yeah, all, all that other, all those other things are, are, are and should always be punished. But in terms of the money aspect of this, you know, we've talked about it on this show before, just I'm ready for whatever's going to happen to happen. I, I do kind of end up taking the same view as I did like five years ago on marijuana, where like clearly we're moving in a direction where, you know, this is going to be legalized in this way or that way. Can we just get there? I, I, I hate the, I hate having to walk uh, towards these things. I want to just right. get to the end of the uh, of the road where we've actually done something about this so we can stop in the meantime talking about how to punish teams that, that, that pay players and whatnot. I think everybody seems to assume that within two, five, 10, 15, whatever years, uh, the, the, whatever is going to happen, there will be changes to the like compensation structure of a college athlete. Uh, I'm just ready to have gotten to that point. So we can talk about that instead of having to continue talking about the old rules in the meantime, I just get, I get I mean, restless. Just, I get itchy Phil, when we do that. Just take, just take, just take marijuana and, and kids getting paid a couple thousand dollars in cash a, a semester. Just take those two things out and think about the landscape, how clear the landscape would be. I mean, if, if the if the pearl clutchers out there, or just the people who don't like Ole Miss or or USC or whoever happens to be doing this at the moment, Miami, whatever, if if you have such a reservation against it, wouldn't you just want to advocate for a a better compensation system for these people? That's what really trips me up, and I and I I tend not to lose my cool in these arguments anymore, but I do find it fun. And, and I do find it unique that the same people who really want to, outside of just the fans who are like, hey, I hate that school, I want them to do bad, but the people who seem to be the most outraged by this are also the same people who are, who are telling me, you know, they're, well, they're getting a college education. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah. So um, I find that funny that there's a corollary there. Yeah. Um, it, it has to count as a good education if you're going to count that. And that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole different set of, whole different set of arguments. Uh, yeah, the right. time the timeline will be there's a TBD short structure timeline for the hearing based off of the events in April uh, at the draft. I, I've yet to come, coin a term. I'll, uh, I welcome anyone who can coin a term for what draft night scandal tonsillitis. I don't know. <laughs> so that's a that's a, there's a short term timeline on discovery for that. The the uh, university and NCA are working on the next thing that happens for Ole Miss is a con- co- the committee on infractions hearing where they decide basically what the punishment actually is. The NCA investigative group, they put forth a report that Ole Miss kind of counters that and said, this is our side of the story. And the Committee on Infractions says, okay, well, this is it, and you're going to get hit with this and this and this, or not, or whatever. Um, if I had to peg a timeline, I would say before Labor Day, but don't hold me to that because these things have a way of dragging themselves out on purpose. Yep, absolutely. Um, if you do the Ole Miss preview, I, I can't say this, Bill, I don't think you'll be in a Brylesy situation. No. You know, I don't. I don't think you're going to see a loss of staff. I don't even think you're going to see a loss of, of assistance right now. You may see some – let me say this. What if I told you hypothetically that, oh, let's say two assistants can't coach in, in, in like two conference games? Does that kind of stuff factor in your no. game? No, okay. not at all. Because, I mean, there, there are just so many things um, – it's well. I mean, this is an extreme example, but it's kind of it's it's like uh, Jim Grobe at Baylor. Nobody has any idea how that's going to work, and uh, like the effect of losing an assistant for a couple of weeks. No, I have no idea yeah. how how I would project that, how anything like that would affect anything, and so therefore, I'm just going to not use it. By the way, I don't think Baylor has any idea how that's going to work. I nope. mean, that was that was. Uh, I was yeah. also told yesterday that was a move orchestrated single handedly by Grant Taft, which makes a ton of sense because Jim oh, yeah. was on the ethics committee um, for the what is it AFCA. Um, nothing against Jim Grobe, 
No, I mean, he's, he, he, for a while, he was able to stay afloat at a job that's really, 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 really hard. Um, because of alumni base, like way harder than Baylor. Like no matter how much he won, that Wake Forest wasn't going to be building a 60,000 seat stadium or whatever. Right. So, um, that was always going to be a hard job. He managed to do it well for a while until he, until he didn't. (laughs) Um, but he's now walking into a situation where like this team that he coaches in 2016 will be by far the most talented athletic team that he's ever coached. Um, been the head coach of anyway. Well, actually, no, I mean, he was mostly what an air force guy, uh, as an assistant. So yeah, no, he's, this, this will be, it's impossible to really project anything that we learned about him at Wake Forest, uh, onto what he'll do this year. It's just, you know, he's a good guy. And, and for a while he seemed like a pretty good head coach and now we'll see. Things to look for in Baylor before we move on. I do think they're going to lose the majority of their current staff. And number two, I have no idea what offense they're going to run. That seems to be the magic question right now. I don't think they're going to be able to keep Bryles, son, Kendall on as OC for obvious reasons. I am fascinated to see what they come out with on offense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm really – it all kind of depends on the assistance. If it, if it really does end up being just these two guys that were involved with Bryles, like I know we've been assuming it was like a staff-wide thing, and maybe it was, but until we until that's confirmed, we don't have any idea. So, I mean, maybe if – you know, maybe Bennett leaves eventually or whoever, but as the – all I could really do for the preview today was basically say, you know, as currently constituted – they're going to be running the Baylor offense and the Baylor defense, and here's what's going to happen. And then, yeah, a month from now, I'll have to update like two thirds of the preview. Where, um, if I had to, I hate doing this to you, but I, but I do feel like it's somewhat worthy of a question. Without knowing what we don't know, what is like like what is the Baylor final record? I hate to stick you to that. I am <laughs> fascinated, like. Like, can, is it even possible to think they're going to win swing games now? I feel like you have to get, you have to take every benefit of the doubt out. If anything, you're adding more doubt. So, I mean, is the, this is a team right now to me that like finishes four and eight, and I'm not just basing that off of John L. Smith in Arkansas. It's just, I mean, all of this thing is, all of college football for coaches is about eliminating variables, and this is just a, you know, a bulldozer of variables that just went through your living room. I mean, well, I, I don't. I look at things in terms of ranges, and to me, this just lowered the floor dramatically. Like, I, I okay. would still say, in certain circumstances, the ceiling, you know, twelve and zero probably isn't. Like, it, without any of this happening in a vacuum, I would say I would have said Baylor's ceiling was somewhere between like nine and three and twelve and zero. Now I would say something more along the lines of three and nine and ten and two. But I mean, I would say, like there are some, plenty of scenarios on the table where they still have. Great quarterback and great skill position guys, and the lines so, really wait, wait, sort wait, of hold up. Whoa, you are for the record. This is newsy. This is we would lead with this if we plan these things. You are not lowering the ceiling. Well, I mean, I kind of am. I, I I lowered it from twelve and zero to like ten and two, but it's still a ceiling. I mean, it's still a range of outcomes. I, I think in terms of standard deviations. So, um, I mean, it, you know, if I said three and ten, three and nine to ten and two, that would mean I guess I'm sort of predicting like seven and five. But. I don't want to live in a journalism world in which Baylor goes ten and two this year. I don't it's, even know what kind of takes that produces. I don't even know what that says, and I don't. <laughs> and God forbid what that kind of thinking emerges amongst athletic directors if that happens. Oh my God! Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I cannot even. There's nothing about Baylor beyond 2016 that I can even get a slight grasp on, which makes me exactly like everybody else. 
But in 2016, I mean, they still have athletes. They still have really good skill guys and really fast defensive backs. And again, that that means the ceiling hasn't been changed that much. It's just that the floor has been changed dramatically now. Bill? Yeah. I'm going to let you talk about this book. But I want want you to know that I know that you're worried right now about box score bingo. Okay? Uh Uh-huh. All right. Whatever you've got to tell I yourself. All right. And, it, and, and by what the way, count your, by the way, what are we counting your record at right now? Like two and a half and, and a half. I think so. Yeah. I think we I think we split that difference one week. So I have to hype it, man. I used to work in pro wrestling. I know how to do this. I have to I have to create a foil for you. If if we're all just cheering you along, that's boring. It's not compelling. How many of these, by the way, do we do before we we turn the tables and you do one? Oh God! Because well, I mean, this we, is supposed I'll, to be I'll an instructive ex- experience where I help to explain how I look at the box score and I give tools so that you can look at the box score the same way. So hey, I'm, I, I'm I'm not paying attention. Okay, like this is not something I'm. You're going just trying to, to find out: is he right? Is he right? Is he right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm the carnival <laughs> barker here. I'm not the talent. All right, you're you're the talent. Um, let's go out west, Bill. Let's go out west to a to a time before. Uh, well, podcasts really. I'm trying to think of a better transition into UCLA, but um, take me away. Podcasts. Take take me away, Bill. Take me to a Los Angeles in which Don Draper might go and enjoy several lucky strikes at a UCLA football contest. Um. So yeah. Th- so each week that we do this, uh, with each week that passes, I'll have written about approximately three more historical teams as I get through my book, the 50 best asterisk college football teams of all time. Um, this last week I wrote about 62 Nebraska, 65 UCLA, and 68 Purdue. And while it would be amazingly on brand to talk about Purdue, um, what I've been doing with these chapters, I have like an approximate word limit for each one, but occasionally I'll stretch it because the story's too interesting. I ended up stretch, I ended up giving 1965 UCLA about 500 more words because their 1965 season was amazing. Um, in terms of the number of ridiculous games they played, of memorable games they played, um, and, and some of the ongoing storylines that were involved there. So first of all, uh, that was 1965 was Tommy Prothrow's first year at, at UCLA. He ended up coaching, I think, what was it, the Rams and the Chargers or something to that effect. That's fine. That's fine. This is not an NFL show. Roger, <laughs> he, you could he ended say up Roger, coaching in the NFL fine. after a few years at UCLA. Before UCLA, he had brought Oregon State to the Rose Bowl, which I'll just pause and let that sink in. That's He, he was a stud uh, of a coach. In the first year he goes to UCLA, he, he inherits a team that has like no size whatsoever but is pretty fast, and they have a, a, a sophomore quarterback named Gary Beban. Uh, Beban. Beban. I, if you watch clips on YouTube, every single one of them pronounces it slightly different, so I'm not actually, I'm not actually sure. I'm going to go with Beban. That's, that feels the most natural to me. Um, two years later, he would win the Heisman Trophy, uh, UCLA's only Heisman winner. But he walks in the door in, in 65. They encounter the following schedule. Uh, at Michigan State in week one. After a bye week at Penn State. Syracuse at home when Syracuse was still pretty good. At Missouri in mid-October for like homecoming at Missouri. Uh, then they go California at Air Force. Air Force had been pretty good that decade. Washington at home. Washington was good. At Stanford. And then they finished the season at USC, which, I mean, at, versus USC, I guess. Uh, and after that, they get, a two, uh, they get a bye week. And then on December 4th, 
for I, I could not find a specific reason for this. This wasn't like a storm delayed the game. I don't think I couldn't find that if it was. Um, they played at Tennessee in Memphis on December fourth, and then uh, since they won a lot of those games, they then played in the Rose Bowl uh, like four weeks later. So that is nuts. And for a sophomore-based team that was undersized, there's really no reason to assume that a team that had gone like four and six the year before would do anything. Um, but they lost the, they lost at Michigan State. That was the year Michigan State went. Uh, they well, they headed into the Rose Bowl ranked number one in the country and undefeated. Um, they lost thirteen to three, but they showed a little resilience. So you know, a little young energy. Tommy Prothrow was apparently just a genius. Tommy Prothrow, by the way, would apparently carry a briefcase everywhere he went, but it was like Pulp Fiction. Like nobody knew what was in the briefcase. Nobody ever saw what was in the briefcase, but he always had it with him. Really? That, that's awesome. Like I, <laughs> I wish somebody would just start doing that now. I would um, do that, but I'm a stay at home blogger. So I, I don't think it would have the same effect. People precisely. at Starbucks would just think I was an a-hole. Yeah. It doesn't really go well with my Puma shorts. Um, Hey, 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 everything goes with Puma shorts. Well, that's okay. That, that was too, that was overreach on my part. Uh, anyway, so then, uh, so they, they 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 give a good showing for themselves against a good Michigan State team. Two weeks later, they go to Penn State. Uh, they build a big, I think, like twenty four to six or seven lead, and uh, hold on to win twenty four twenty two. So now, hey, they're going back home. The pretty decent team. They beat they they do the same thing. They leap out to a lead against Syracuse and win twenty four fourteen. They go up fourteen nothing on Missouri in the fourth quarter, and that's a really good Missouri team that year with uh, Johnny Rowland. Um, they go up 14, nothing. Then they give up a kick return and a punt return for touchdowns and they tie 14, 14. Uh, they crush California. They pull away from air force late. They, uh, against Washington, they were losing. And in the last, in the final quarter, they, um, ran a trick play where, uh, one of their receivers leaves the huddle, walks toward the sideline, like he's walking off the field, but stops, Short blends into the scenery, takes a short pass uncovered, and goes 50 yards to the game winning touchdown. Hell yeah! And apparently, Washington was still pissed off about that like 10 years later. Like, they ran up the score on UCLA one of those years in the coming years, and, and that was one of the reasons why, because uh, they were still pissed about that game. Uh, so they beat them 28 24. Now they're seventh in the country. They win at Stanford 30 13. Uh, they go home, they get complete. Uh, so now it's seven UCLA versus six USC for the Pac-10 title or Pac-8. No, AWU. That's what they were called then. Uh, they, whatever that was, Association of Western Universities. Um, winner goes to the Rose Bowl. Mike Garrett rushes for 200 yards. Southern Cal's uh, dominates the whole game. They're up like 16 to seven, I think. Um, they lose a fumble with four minutes left. Uh, Beeman, who has been terrible all day, throws a touchdown pass. Uh, they then recover an onside kick. Uh, Beeman gets sacked. It's third and like 24 from the 51, and he throws a, a bomb uh, touchdown for the game winner. Uh, and UCLA is going to the Rose Bowl. Before they can go to the Rose Bowl, they play at number seven, Tennessee, in Memphis, where, um, according to uh, where Prothrow, who is apparently very reserved on the sideline, gets so mad that after the game he renounces his southernness. He was from Tennessee. He was born in Memphis. Maybe that's why they played the game there. Um, and he was so mad at the officiating that he said he was ashamed to be a Southerner uh, because of clock stoppages and, and yeah. iffy spots on like a fourth down. And if you you can actually watch the game-winning touchdown by Tennessee on, on YouTube. And if he got in, it was by about six inches. Tennessee um, routinely played in that Liberty Bowl, by the way. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so that 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 was another nuts game, and, and the highlights are hilarious. It ended up being like thirty-seven to thirty-four. 
um, which, you know, by 1965 standards would have been about like 70 to 66 today. Um, so after that nuts game, they then go to the Rose Bowl and beat Michigan State to prevent Michigan State to win the national title. Um, you can watch that on YouTube as well. Uh, UCLA goes up 14 nothing early, completely stalls out. Michigan State uh, scores to make it 14-6. They go for two because they have no interest in tying, but they fail. Uh, so then when they score again with like 30 seconds left, they have to go for two in the tie. If they get it, they will probably win the national title anyway because like number two and three both lost. Uh, they have a big uh, Hawaiian fullback named Bob Apiza, who is like 210 pounds, and you can watch the highlights of Bob Styles, 5'8", 175, basically standing him up at the half-yard line, getting knocked unconscious, but keeping him out of the end zone, and UCLA wins 14-12. Wow. So there you go. That's how that's I, I was pretty I was pretty sure that some of that had happened. That was and I knew about Beban and, and Prothro, so that's why I put them on the list because it seemed like an interesting story. I really had no idea what I was getting into with that story. Uh, but they went eight, two, and one. Um they their one loss was to Michigan State, who they then beat. They tied at Missouri, and Missouri was a top ten team. They beat USC, they they lost a crazy ass Memphis game to Tennessee. Um that's a full year. The uh the one thing I can contribute here is that if you go back and look at the history of a lot of Southern schools, they would routinely lose recruits to UCLA specifically. Um, it had to do with, um, I guess, kind of a layover effect of civil rights. Right. And that UCLA was very aggressive in recruiting young black men out of the South, as were programs like Michigan and Michigan State. Um, and this, the success of UCLA and a handful of other programs in the West and the North kind of contribute... I would say kind of, kind of directly cause um, desegregation in college programs in the South. Yeah, that's that's a big part of these chapters that I'm writing about now is like the when things started to become desegregated and then and why and and yeah, like even '68 Purdue, Leroy Keys, maybe the greatest player in Purdue history, one of them anyway. Um, He was kind of the in 1968, he might have been the best running back and flanker in the country. Uh, and cornerback, for that matter. He was from Virginia Beach. He ended up at Purdue because nobody was recruiting him from the Virginia and Southern areas. So he ended up at Purdue and, and was amazing. So this, uh, this, Yeah, this continues on for decades, even into the early 1980s, and when programs like Pitt would, would still be able to come and recruit successfully in the South. Um, it's one thing that SEC fans don't talk about, and it's one thing that SEC fans never really think about, is had they been more, um, you know, forward thinking and predicted the future of college football as well as, you know, just been decent human beings. Uh, this could have changed the, do- I mean, this could have set up a, a period of dominance even greater than what we've seen from the SEC at certain points in history. Um, they failed miserably at this. And I think it directly, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to shortchange anybody, but it directly contributed to the rise of programs like UCLA specifically. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it really, it fed, all the programs that were willing to take on black players. I mean, uh, so the Big Eight, the Big Ten, the Pac-10, HBCUs that were pretty stacked with future pros in the 60s and 70s. Um, I mean, the, all that talent, that, that talent has always existed. It just went elsewhere until like the last 20 years, 30 years. Are you still scared? You still re- ready? <laughs> you still want to do this, bro? I guess. I, I'm, I'm bored, honestly, but, you know, we'll go with it. Oh, Wow. Damn. Bill's bored. God. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, all right, are you ready? Yep. 
Okay, um, this week's Blind Box Score Bingo, brought to you by a sponsor to be determined yet. Um, we have a limited amount of information. I don't have the individual's name in front of me. We'll credit him at the end. Remind me to do that, please. As always, if you want to play Blind, blind Box Score Bingo, all you have to do is email me, not Bill. Uh, I need an image that's stripped of team names and any specific proper nouns. Um, if you, you can use ESPN.com, CBS Sports, whatever you want to use. Just send me a box score with the two teams and their information, but, but no identifying factors. I'm going to give that to Bill. Bill is going to tell us what happened in the football game, or he will try to. I didn't even check the date on this one. No one to do I that. Jo- I, I basically have one job on the show, and I routinely don't do it. Um, all I, right, like, you I like your logo idea, by the way. So you've got that going for you. Thanks. Yeah, oh, I tell you what, learning how to use a spreadsheet, I don't know what you've been doing with your life. It is, that is a miserable, miserable prospect. Um, okay. Bill, are you ready? I'm ready. We're going to go with, um, I'm, I'm going to go with team number one and team number two. The yeah. colors trip me up sometimes, all right? So the, the number one, team number one had 34 first downs. Team number two had 16 first downs. Team number one was 7 of 22 on third down and 3 of 4 on fourth. Team number two was 6 of 14 and had no fourth down conversions. Or attempts, I should say. Okay. Team number one had 554 total yards. Team number two had 400. Uh, of, those, of those 554 for team number one, 312 were passing. They were 37 of 58 with 5.4 yards of pass and two interceptions thrown. Team number two had of their 400 total yards had 262 passing. They were 19 of 33 passing for 7.9 a pass, no picks thrown. Team number one, 242 rushing yards out of their 554 total. They had 56 attempts at 4.3 yards a rush. Team number two had 138 yards rushing out of their 400 total. They had 26 attempts and 5.3 a rush. Uh, penalties. Team number one had seven for 68. Team number two had 10 for 101 yards. Both teams had two turnovers. The aforementioned team one had two from the interceptions thrown. Team two had two fumbles lost. Team number one, time of possession, 41 minutes and five seconds. Team number two, 18 minutes and 55 seconds. Okay. I'm going to give you a second, Bill. You feel good? I'm ready. Oh, All you're right. already ready? Oh yeah. Okay. So, um, so so basically, team, what team A had going for it? Thirty-four to sixteen on first downs means they were um, the first downs isn't a perfect efficiency measure by any means, but it certainly it tells you how like clearly team two was was completely dominated by big plays. So team one then is the team that had the the uh, what seven for twenty-two on third downs. That's not great, but clearly they were moving the ball. Um, and, and clearly they were moving the ball well enough to hold the ball for 41 minutes of possession. So, that doesn't, possession doesn't necessarily mean they were winning the game. It's really hard not to stay close in this situation. The fact that they threw 58 times tells me they were either Washington State or they were behind uh, and having to play catch up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also, with 56 rushing attempts, that's insane. That's 114 snaps to 59 for Team 2. Um, God, that's that's crazy. 
Uh, let's see. So both teams had two turnovers. I'm going to guess that if, you know, even running that many plays, that's still a ton of passing attempts. I'm going to assume team one was playing from behind. And, I'm, uh, you know, the odds are pretty good then that the, they're what they were the ones that, yeah, threw two interceptions. Um, I would say the odds are pretty good that the one, like there was a, there was some sort of pick, pick six or some sort of like kick return or some sort of big play. Um, and, and then of course, team two had a ton of big plays on offense. They completed 19 passes for 262 yards, but which isn't a ton. Um, but they just, they had 59 total plays. That's so, so they were, their possessions were ending very quickly is, is Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling now because I don't know. No, that's okay. That's okay. What I'm, conclusions? So far, you said you think it was a close game. It, well, I mean, it had to have been a close game. It, it basically, let's put it this way. It had to have been a close game for one team to run 114 snaps because, like, eventually, if you're losing by 40, you give up. You're not going to have that many, especially not that many rushes, honestly. But if you're winning, you're eventually slowing it down, uh, and, and you end up in the, like, 80 to 100 range. 114 is too many. Say so this is why I can never play this game because I. You, uh, we'll get to the answer in a second. You're right about that. I would never draw that as an inference. It's just not how my brain works. All right. Any other? You said it was a close game. You said one team. You said team number one played from behind. You feel like, and that team number two had a lot of big explosive plays. Is there anything else you'd like to say before I reveal the game? Uh, let me walk back through here. They were relatively even on third downs. Um... Uh, I, well, wait, what is the yards per play there? They didn't include it. So 554 in 114 uh, versus, so that's like what, like five-ish yards per play. And then 400 yards in 59 total plays is like six-ish yards per play. Yeah, yeah, okay. So this was efficiency versus explosiveness. One team kind of tracking the other one down. Um, depending on those, I mentioned a pick six. I mean, I guess depending on those return touchdowns, if there were return touchdowns, maybe team two still won. But this one was, I'm guessing, pretty close to a toss-up when you when you factor in the yards I'm, per play aspect. I mean, I'm, a, I'm about to throw the buzzer on you. Normally, you're done by now. Yeah, no, I'm really... All right. I'm pulling an upset here. I'm saying if they submitted this to you, then the team with all the with the total yardage disadvantage won. I'm saying team two won. Team two won. Okay, you ready? Yep. You are right. Team two won. You are right. It was a close game. You are right. Team one played from behind the entire time. This is nothing but a win for Bill Connolly, here, folks. Dateline October thirty first, two thousand fifteen, Pasadena, California. Colorado ran 114 plays and held the ball for more than 41 minutes while the latest wave of injuries washed over number 24 UCLA's already battered defense. The weary Bruins weathered everything the Buffaloes could manage and hung on to stay in control of the Pac-12 South. So, so oh, that's Jamba. right. They were, in, they were in control of the Pac-12 South at one point last year. Yeah, that's right. So, so Jamabo, I think I pronounced that right. Rushed for the go-ahead touchdown with 8.28 to play, and UCLA blew an 18-point lead before escaping the Rose Bowl with a 35-31 victory. Josh Rosen passed for 262 yards and a touchdown for the Bruins, who avoided an embarrassing loss despite giving up 18 consecutive points in the second half and yielding 540 total yards to the Buffaloes, who haven't beaten a ranked team on the road since 2002. Oh, God. The Buffaloes dominated possession to an extraordinary degree, forcing UCLA's depleted defense to stay on the field for 55 more snaps than its Colorado counterpart. The Bruins bent repeatedly but stood up straight late. (laughs) 
That was the longest game I've played on defense ever, said linebacker Jayon Brown. Uh, I'll skip, 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 skip. Patrick Carr rushed for 110 yards, and his touchdown run put Colorado ahead with 12-4 to play. Bruins answered with Jamabo's score before stopping the Buffaloes twice in UCLA territory on an 88-degree Halloween day. Um, oh, God. 100, geez, 114 snaps on uh, in 88-degree weather. Nice. Jim, Moore, Jim Moore called it a gritty win. Uh, Paul Perkins had an 82-yard touchdown run, so there's your explosive play. Um, yeah, I just pulled Colorado it up here. Colorado set so. a school record for plays. Uh, I'm trying to – I think there's a strip sack here in this game. Uh, the Buffalo uh, Buska finally got a break when Rosen fumbled while getting sacked. The ball went go. straight to uh, Kofavalu. The defensive tackle returned it with 14:37 to play. The Buffaloes then took a 31-28 lead on the subsequent touchdown run. So, damn, I think Bill, you, you pretty much hit everything here. Yeah, if I had known that Colorado also had a fumble recovery, that might have changed my well. My prediction was based simply on you know why did this person submit the, the game? So that doesn't really count, I guess. But. Um, I don't think you need to worry about it. I think you aced the, the F out of this one. Yeah, so 4.9 4. yards per play is why they lost. You, you, you had the two turnovers, but you really weren't generating any sort of big plays, um, and, and you were just constantly playing from behind there because of a 96-yard score and a 82-yard score and a 31-yard score. Um, yeah, it's tough, to, it's tough to win when you're handing the other team three big touchdowns like that. Josh Hernandez. Thank you, by the way, Josh. Josh is a Bruins fan who sent that in to us. Um, I'm, just, I'm assuming he's a Bruins fan based on his email handle, which I won't give out. Um, thank you for sending that in, Josh. As always, please send in your box score bingo, blind box score bingo. Submissions, don't send them to Bill. I don't think he's cheating, but I don't think he needs to, honestly. Oh, huh, they had a 62-yard um, pass in there. So I'm just, I'm full of it, apparently. Colorado did. Now Colorado did? Then one, oh, one explosive play? Yeah, oh, then they kicked through, they attempted four field goals, so that's the other part of it. They UCLA scored touchdowns, Colorado settled for four field goals and missed one. So that that would be the other well, part. Well, one one interesting item here is that in Josh's submission, he kept it pretty simple, like the actual image that he sent me to grab. So there wasn't as much information as we've used in the past, and yet Bill was probably this is probably the most on point you've been. So it may fly in the face that you – I know you always talk about, like, oh, I wish I could see – you always talk about, oh, I wish I could see how drives ended, but, you know, probably that, that takes away the game. But you really didn't need it this time. Yeah, well, anytime you end up with a – I think a, a snap disparity tells a lot. Um, and so I'm able to that, – that's certainly one area where you can really sort of define a game because it's – there are only certain in, instances where you're going to end up with a case where one team had double the plays of the other, and it's going to be yeah. because of turnovers or because of big plays. Um, and, and so that kind of helped define the game a little bit. All right. Um, I think that's going to be it for us this week. Um, we waded through the bad news, I think, amicably. Um, probably the best one, box score bingo, we've had in a while. Uh, we'll be back next week at the same time. I would expect there to be more bad news on the horizon. Um, Bill, see you next week. Yep.